Please welcome, please welcome, welcome. This is another episode of the Defenders of Business Value podcast, a podcast where we talk about what makes a business valuable, learn the tips and tactics to increase your company's value that only veteran dealmakers know. And now here's your host, Ed Misogland. Welcome to another episode of the Defenders of Business Value podcast. I'm your host, Ed Misogland. Uh, this this week, we're talking to Ray Drew. And and for those of you in the Twitter space, uh, he is known as SBA Ray, and he is all things SBA. So Ray, he's a five-time top producing SBA lender and the host of the number one podcast in the SBA uh, industry. The, the title of the podcast, and you should subscribe as I do, is The Art of SBA Lending. And you're saying, well, why would I, why would I do that? Well, there's lots, lots that goes on behind the scenes and having a clearer understanding of if you're a buyer or seller or an advisor for that matter, it's a good, it's a good podcast to understand the things that are going on behind, behind the scenes, as well as the future of, of, of this type of lending. So he's dedicated his entire professional career to helping small business owners navigate the intricacies of SBA borrowing. And I can tell you after the podcast, he, he delivers, he absolutely uh, is an authority on, on uh, all things SBA. He's currently uh, the managing business development partner at Fundex uh, Solutions Group, which is a, a national um, leading non-bank SBA lender for business acquisitions. So I, I am certain that you will learn something. Um, it was a great conversation, and and I always um, love talking about SBA lending because it is, as a deal guy, it really helps to to be able to align yourself with with people that are versed and people that can get deals done. So I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ray Drew of Fundex Solutions. Well, Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You know what? I've I've been looking forward to visiting with you. I'm a, I, I lurk on on Twitter. I should I should probably get more more active in in commenting things like that. But but uh, you know I do follow a lot of what you a lot of what you're preaching, what you're saying, and I'm just grateful that uh, that you hopped on for this morning to to visit with us about uh, what's going on with the SBA. Yeah, so always happy to do that. Well, I wanted to start, you know, I, I, I always, my introductions, you know, before you come on, you know, that they're, they're okay, but I guess it, it, it always sounds better coming from the person I'm interviewing. So can you talk a little bit about your practice before we get started? Sure. Um, I got into SBA lending in 2011, uh, right out of college. I just, you know, fell into it by accident, like many people in the SBA space. and. I'm a business development officer. So I go out, I find people who need financing, and then I work with them through the process to get to the finish line so that they can start, grow, acquire their business. And so I've been doing that over the last 12 years. And it's quite frankly, my only skill in life. And uh, <laughs> luckily, I love it very much. But um, I'm now managing business development officer at Fundex, where a non-bank lender focused in the business acquisition transactions. I run a small team and I do my own uh, loans for folks looking to buy businesses. Nice. 
Well, that brings us to why I wanted to visit with you. So November brought us some some new guidance from the SBA. Can you uh, can you talk a little bit about you know some of the some of the changes that you know are applicable to to buyers and sellers? Yeah, and to put it into context, like you know, people when they're ready to go get an SBA loan, they may not understand that the rules change every few years, and sometimes they changed more often than others. And so this time, which really was in August, uh, and even the, we got a taste of it in May, but essentially 2023 was the biggest changes to the SBA 7A program in beyond the 12, 13 years I've been doing this. And the SBA has really been pushing access to capital, especially on smaller dollar loans. And they're just trying to find ways to streamline the process. Now, one of the big changes they did this year was to introduce partial change of ownership transactions. They also loosened up their equity injection requirements, and they made this big pivot to allowing lenders to underwrite and close the SBA loans the way they want to, which you know created quite a stir. They also changed their approval process. So oh, any one of these things could have been like the biggest change ever in, in the SBA world, but they did it all at once. And so when that came out in August, we were left with uh, more questions than answers in some yeah. cases. And so they came back here in November. You know, Meanwhile, the last three months, we've kind of been like just winging it. But here in November 2023, they came out to kind of close the loop on a lot of those uh, questions that we had. Well, let's start with partial buyouts. I, I guess I'm, I'm curious to know, why do you think they did that? Why, why partial buyouts? So when it first came out, I thought that maybe it was a way for folks to buy into their company. Um, but, you know, what we're seeing more is just people buying, you know, uh, 81, 90, 99% of a company, right? Mm -hmm. Sellers are essentially exiting their business, but retaining a small percentage. Usually it's under 20 so that they don't have to personally guarantee the loan. Right, because anyone who owns twenty okay. percent or more has to personally guarantee the loan. So we're seeing it there a little bit more. But you know, I think there's other things. Like one thing I thought of was, if you are the owner and you gave your manager five percent of the company and you wanted to sell the company, well, if you were ready to re retire but your manager wasn't, you would have to sell the entire company to a buyer, and the manager would mm -hmm. lose their five percent ownership. So I think ultimately it was just a way to add more flexibility to the program. Interesting. I, you know, the, I, I was thinking maybe it had to do with, you know, how everybody wants to do an ESOP, you know, everybody on, you know, that shows up here thinks that they might be a candidate for an ESOP and, and the majority of the time, you know, we're talking them out that they don't have, you know, what's going, you know, what they need in order to successfully, you know, oper own and operate, you know, an employee owned organization. And I think, you know, as far as the partial buyout, I think that that stemmed a little bit, of, you know, to why, why it was put into place, you know, not only, not only from, I, th I think there was an increase in, in partner buyouts, or, you know, uh, you know, the fractional interest um, buyout you know, when, you know, you know, for like professional practices, but more so that I think that <clears throat> this gave the SBA a, 
a vehicle that accomplished the same thing as an ESOP. Now, granted, we're only talking an employee as opposed to multiple employees. But I, I, and again, it's only theory. I have no idea whether whether or not that's true or not. You got any thoughts on it, or am I way off base? Well, the, one of the one of the kind of interesting parts right now is that I I don't understand the why behind a lot of what the SBA did in this last round. You know, what we do is we keep our head down, try to understand the rules, try to educate the marketplace on the guidelines so that they can move forward in their businesses accordingly. And oftentimes you do understand the why if you really work closely with the SBA and our trade organization. But this was one of those times where they implemented some things that were just like, you know, what is this? Why are we doing this? No one's asking for this. So like, um, it would be nice to understand it a little bit more. But the way the marketplace is reacting is essentially they're using it in a couple different uh, ways. One is a, mit- a risk mitigation tool. And there's um, you know, a school of thought that if the seller remains in the business, uh, there's less uh, transitional risk. You know, It mitigates the transitional risk and gives the seller a potential second bite at the apple and incentivizes them to help set the buyer up for success. And there's, you know, there's other flip sides to that as well. Um, but that's what we're seeing. In addition to, it's a vehicle that allows the seller to stay on past 12 months. So like with yeah. a complete change of ownership transaction, which is what we've been doing, the SBA has a very strict 12-month limit on how long the seller can stay on. And with the partial change of ownership, even if they own 1%, they can stay on indefinitely. And so we're seeing that being used for solutions to different problems such as licensing, for example. Um, so, yeah, well, I'll tell you the, one of the things that, um, that struck me is, yeah, that there's similarities, similarities to the, to the vehicles. Like for example, you you just referred to the second bite of the apple, you know, that is, that has been a private equity play for forever in a day where we recap the, the business and the, and the owner, you know, participates going forward um and like i said on the partial buyouts it almost it almost it has a lot of the the bells and whistles that you would find in an esop minus the compliance issues so i don't know maybe they were taking playbooks out of uh you know some of the other vehicles yeah i'm not sure it's it's interesting but uh yeah. we'll see how it unfolds you know yeah no no uh it it i, I mean from a from a deal guy and from from your standpoint keep rocking on SBA, you know, that's a all keep good on. <laughs> right on. So on uh, standby notes, you know, yeah. every seller, you know, you know, it, it's amazing. Um, the new sellers don't understand just, you know, you're getting 90 or 95% cash and you're still pissed about, about a standby note. Can you talk a little bit about the standby note, what it's for, and and how how mechanically how it works and then and then lastly you know most sellers will get that number will will get their money eventually but it's it, there's a purpose behind it so can you talk a little bit about that yeah well you know that's why business brokers have a tough job you know these intermediaries have to educate sellers on what the market is doing and what's realistic and why things are required you know, that's, I don't, I don't really speak to the sellers on most mm-hmm. transactions. So I don't have those conversations. 
all I know is that a seller note in general is pretty market, you know, to have in a transaction and buyers like them because, you know, after you close and you're so reliant on the seller, it's just a good way to keep them engaged to make sure that the transition is successful and and that the buyer and the business continues to see success. Now, when you get into standby, you're talking about equity injection. So this is one where just give you a little more history. Prior to 2000, I want to say 16, the maximum I could finance on a large business acquisition, so anything with over half a million dollars goodwill, which is like all of them, um, the maximum I could finance, and again, this is pre-2016, was 75%. So unless a buyer had 25% cash, that was a longstanding thing. And um, so you had seller financing in there. On all those deals, you saw 15% seller financing, 10% cash, 75% SBA. That was standard. Then in 2016, the SBA said, hey, let's, let's loosen these guidelines up and let's allow for 90% financing for business acquisitions. We, I, I was shocked. I said, no bank's ever going to go to 90 on a business acquisition. That's super high leverage. And yet we got there and we got even beyond there um, yeah. with uh, the, the you know, the SBA allowing 5% of that to be of that 10% equity injection to be a seller note. But then they introduced the thing called full standby for the life of the loan. We had never seen that before. It was, that's a pretty tough pill to swallow because it's essentially like you're not that 5%, you're going to get paid back in maybe 10 years, right? You can't collect any of that 5% until the SBA loans paid in full, which these are 10 year loans. So, That was new, and that's a tough one to swallow. Now, the good news for sellers, if you put that into context of, hey, the SBA just made it so that you only have to put this on standby for two years now. Instead of 10 years, it's two years, yeah. and now you can now sell your business to buyers, and the pool of buyers who can afford 5% instead of 10% is going to be much bigger. So you should be able to get more money for your business. You should yeah. be able to sell it quicker. And you'll be able to earn interest on on the seller note. So I kind of like that structure now, and I like the flexibility the SBA has given us to get deals done. Yeah, I think it's gonna. I think it it will do it will do the the buying a business community a, a lot of good because back in the day, you know, it was like, look, you got a ten year standby. You know, if you never see this, the, I mean, our counsel was, if you never see this, are you okay with the deal? Right. So if if you're good, then let's proceed. But, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, the, but what's funny and I, I, I'll just address the question now, you know, back in the day, and this is before your time, I mean, getting all cash or 90 or 95% cash would mean that you would have to take a substantial discount on price, you know, because all of the risk or the bulk of the risk was, um, you know, being put onto the buyer. and so. So there was, like I said, just the price was discounted. But now, I mean, you're still talking 95% cash. And so I guess I, I the question behind that is, you know, what do you, I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because I, I, I it, the phenomenon would be, you would think that it would lower the price, but it hasn't at all. <laughs> As a valuation guy, I'm looking like, oh, I mean, I've got biz comps of, of deals and there's a, a book called transaction patterns where they did a study of 
the the amount of discount for all cash over a course of a 10 year period. And I mean, it's like 30 or 40 percent. So it's in, it, it's interesting where we are today. So you got any thoughts on that? Well, we're talking about pretty Main Street and maybe some lower middle market deals here in the SB arena. I mean, I could go up to five million dollars on a loan and that those multiples have remained pretty constant for as long as I've been doing this. You know, mm -hmm. we've been talking about 3X, 4X, whatever, SBE. And, uh, you know, if the SBA loan program were to go away, think about what that would mean for sellers. <laughs> They're holding north of 50% and I'm sure taking a discount on, on, on these transactions. It's only because of the SBA 7A program. That's what I mean. That all these sellers can retire with this huge cash windfall at closing. Yeah. And, and that's what's so funny about it. It's like, I don't think you understand just how big of a deal it is of what the SBA is, is enabling you and your exit. And anyway, I don't think they ever will. <laughs> that, well, just, that, just, it's, it's just like anything. You got to put yourself, put yourself in the buyer shoots. Like if I was going to go out and buy a business, I'm going to require that the seller holds some paper, especially mm -hmm. if I don't know the industry because right. I'm going to be reliant on them. And I don't want there to be like, if the business, if it turns south after closing and you don't have a seller note you're kind of like screwed so like if you if you do have a seller note right. um at least you have that additional lifeline now most deals you know aren't gonna mo you know it's not like uh these deals are going you know bad left and right the sba has a pretty uh low default rate uh although i think there's a little bit uh you know of um I think that it's artificially low to a certain extent, but um, still, you you don't want to put yourself in that situation where you just are, you know, up S's Creek without a paddle. Right. Well, you know, and again, I mean, you're right. I mean, the seller, a note is an attention getter. And I, as a, you know, now with the SBA that has, has, has enabled this only to go two years. I mean, it, it from a seller standpoint and a buyer for that matter, you know, it, it accomplishes what it it's supposed to. Within two years, you should have a pretty good idea about the business. And if there's any kind of right of offset, you will have already addressed it in that note. So uh, to me, you know, good on the SBA on the on on the reduction of the uh, of the term. Because I, if that's what they were trying to do, they accomplished both things, you know, meaning yeah. the, you know, they got the, the, the lower equity injection from the buyer and they, and they're enabling it to serve as the vehicle to mitigate the risk in the event of, uh, uh, you know, misrepresentation or whatever the issue may be. So, right. So how much due diligence do your underwriters do when, when they're getting financed? You know, because I think sellers, you know, it's, it, you know, here's the, here's, here's all this information that that's provided to you. Not as much as provided to the buyer, but it, there's a pretty good chunk that goes to you. So what do you guys do with all that? I would say the due diligence we do is probably about a 10th of what a buyer should do. Yeah. I mean, we are in the, there's one thing that's pretty common in all of the deals that come across my desk and they all want to move very quickly 
because everyone understands time kills deals. And it, sometimes people are searching for six months, a year, two years to find the right business. So when you find it, you don't have time to go work with a lender who's going to just, you know, start lollygagging around. You know, you want to be able to work with someone who can pick it up and run. So we've designed our program around speed and execution. And so when I submit my file to underwriting, they most often will, what they'll do is they'll take the package. So this is everything. Tax, we get mostly tax returns and business plan projections. We're mostly focused on cash flow, the amount of cash flow, in terms of debt service coverage, and the quality of cash flow. So you do ask some qualitative questions as well and dig into customer concentration and things like that, higher risk. But they have that file for about five days. And that's not enough to do due diligence on a deal as a buyer should, right? So like they're going to have maybe two conversations with the buyer, the underwriter is. They're going to look at the package we've assembled and they're going to create an SBA credit memo that's going to be used to submit the loan for approval. Um, we are focused very much on debt service coverage. So most deals that have a good business with good debt, debt service coverage and, a, and someone who we think can be a good operator for that business, 99% of those deals are going to work. And so we're just trying to make sure we are not missing anything and that there's no red flags. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that is a, a one week process. So how much could an underwriter possibly do in a week? It's enough for us to get comfortable, but it's not enough to do mm -hmm. diligence of business. Yeah. So from start to finish, how many days? So we see, I'll tell you my fastest was, um, six and a half weeks. We've done a couple of those, um, nice. here in the past year or so. And those are the ones that's like, Hey, my lender told me this. We've got a full file. We got to go. And, and, you know, the other lender dropped the ball or they changed the terms at the 11th hour or whatever. And, uh, you know, so if you, ha if you were, if you're late in the process and you come to me, yeah, we could turn it around in six, seven weeks. But most of the people coming to me are coming to me much earlier, nice. right, right before LOI. And, and most of those deals are taking a solid 60 to 90 days. I would say for them to actually go through the process, like, like I said, my uh -huh. process is only a week to underwrite a deal. So it's really them going through due diligence, going through the APA or stock purchase agreement negotiations, assembling yeah. all of the different closing documents. And then once they have all that stuff put together, you know, we, we go ahead and close the loan. I got it. A lot of sellers want to know about the business valuation and two things. One, um, you know, why is it required? All right. That's the first thing, because if, if, if it pencils out from underwriting, why do I need a business valuation? So that's my first question. Can it, can my answer be because the SBA says so? <laughs> no. That, uh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I know a lot of people that do business valuation work for, you know, for compliance, SBA compliance purposes. And, and, and I, I always heckle them. I'm like, does any of your, does anything ever come back? I mean, you know, anything that you ever say, yeah, you know what, this is a bad deal. You know, it, it wouldn't have gotten to you if it, if it was a bad deal, you know, I, that's just me, but I may be wrong. Well, you know, you'd be surprised because there are some deals where you look at it and it works, it's tight, but it works. 
And so the debt service coverage, which the SBA's debt service coverage minimum is 1.15. Mm-hmm. Now, the reality is most yields at these valuations should warrant much higher debt service coverage. Sure. So you don't really have, if you have a deal that's priced right, it cash flows, right? Like most of the time. That's why I like these deals. There's always a way to right. figure out a way to get it done. Um, but if I'm really tight on my debt service coverage, I look and I say, well, you know what? I'm at a 1.15. And, and then I look at the multiple. I'm like, this is a 5.8 times multiple. I was like, something's off here. And right. so I'll be like, hey, let, just to let you know, like this works for me because I need debt to hit my debt service coverage requirements. But it's probably you're going to have a valuation issue on here because I see this range here, two and a yeah. half to four and a half times, let's say, and you're over here. Yeah, and you're so the we got to take a look at that. Yeah, I can, I can see that. I, I, I've seen more uh, operational disqualification more so than financial disqualification. You know, because normally some somebody like you will will pump the brakes and say, "Yeah, you know what this 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 is so paper thin that you know if, if there's a if if there's a miss anywhere in the process, you we you know you run the risk of default and and you're only putting five ten percent down, so you don't have a lot of a lot of room to." you know, to make that mistake. And I, I have seen a retrade as a result after, um, you know, after talking with somebody like you and, and fortunately they did. And, you know, there's only so much money. It it has to pencil out. So again, I, I, I will continue to hassle my business valuation brethren that do SBA work and, you know, just checkbox work. That, that just Ed talking. I'm I'm shoot. I'm you know I'm well, shooting my mouth off. The the, SB, the SBA actually just requires that the business valuation supports the loan, not the mm-hmm. purchase price. So you can theoretically overpay for a business. You know, um, yeah. And and if you have a large seller note, you can overpay by a lot. And yeah. uh, I don't. You know, not that I I, don't, I wouldn't want to, but like some people do, and sometimes it makes sense in a strategic acquisition. So you do have that flexibility, which is nice. But for the everyday person coming off the street, exiting yeah. corporate America, looking to buy a business, they probably want to buy something that's at fair market value. And I mm-hmm. think the SBA just wants to protect the buyer. Yeah. And that's what the thought is behind just having that requirement. Yeah, I get you. And like I said, I, I mean, as a, as a valuation guy, I, I have all kinds of reasons to hassle my, my brethren. Um, all right. I wanted to ask you about, you know, on these partial buyouts. So you and I, you and I buy, you buy my business. I stay around for 20%. You default, all right, for whatever reason. I, and I have no idea why you did, but I'm here. I am. I'm 19%. I don't have a personal guarantee. I could let this thing burn to the ground. My question is, how can I get the business back? You know, do I, do I have to allow the, the default process to, to run its course or can I, quickly come in and you know assume the loan you know what what are what are my options that's a great question and and the interesting part about this period in time is that situation has never happened because the partial change of ownerships are so new that we don't even have enough time to have made one i just made my first one two weeks ago yeah right and so hopefully they're not in that situation and uh you know, it will happen eventually and you're going to have to see because like you yeah. get into the default process with SBA, which is not my area of expertise, although I did have someone who specializes in that on my podcast a couple weeks ago. 
Um, but that is, that's a bridge we're going to have to cross at some point, yeah. but we have not yet. All right. Well, I, was, I was curious to see if, if there was any guidance. All right. Well, moving to buyers. So what makes you, you started to touch upon it on, on going to the underwriting. So what makes financing go easier for a buyer? So for a buyer, um, you know, I just got off the phone this morning with someone who's trying to get pre-approved. So pre-approvals for buyers, something I used to not do because it's kind of like meaningless. Like, you know, it's not like a mortgage where, Hey, I've pre-approval on, I can go pick, you know, my house and, and close it's, but it is a good way to just let's start somewhere. Let's make sure you've got the cash in order. Let's make sure you have the right type of experience to operate a small business. And let's make sure you don't have any credit issues or background checks, background issues that's going to prohibit you from buying a business with an SBA loan. So you kind of can start there. I created sbapreapproval.com so folks can go right in there, fill out the questions, and I can work with them on getting them pre-approved. And then when they go find a business, you know, hopefully mm-hmm. most of the deals I'm doing right now are um, there's an intermediary involved. So they are packaging up the sale. And so if you have uh, a buyer who's prepared, you have an SBA lender who knows acquisition and SBA, which, you know, that's, that's always my biggest advice to a buyer is, you know, cause there's, if you look at the list of SBA lenders, there's 1500, there's over 1500 that made one uh, last year, mm-hmm. but the bottom, like, forget the number, but it's, it's a lot. It's like the bottom, like, Several hundred, like 900 of them are just That's not, ex- they just, they're community banks that right. want to service their customers and do one here, one there. And if I'm going through this process and I need to close in 60 or 90 days, you know, there's no way they're going to be able to. So you just want to work with the folks at the top who are doing this every day. And so if you have that in place, you have the buyer who is prepared and you have a seller who's working with an intermediary who's telling them, um, prepping them for the process. Hey, you might have to hold a seller note and Hey, you know, your tax returns, um, should be filed on time and let's make sure you don't have any, uh, you know, tax issues that come up in the middle of the process. And so you just be proactive and you get the right team together. And these things are not that bad, honestly. I know, you know, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, the deal having to pencil out, but what we didn't talk about is direct operational experience or relatable experience to the acquisition. Um, I know a lot of buyers are first time buyers and, and they're trying to get into a particular business. They find it, they fall in love with it, but you know, perhaps they're coming from manufacturing and they're going into service. So, you know, how do uh, how do I bridge the gap of operational relatable experience? Well, it's a good question because um, there's a lot of banks that require direct industry experience. That is okay. Essentially, interesting. A, a less risky transaction to finance yeah. if somebody's buying a business in the industry that they know. Now. That's mostly not the case for the business acquisitions I finance. Most of the people looking for businesses that work with me are coming from different walks of life and they're buying a business and many of them are industry agnostic. So what I tell buyers is you do need some transferable skills and, and you definitely need relevant management experience. You can't go 
buy a business and now this is going to be the first time you've ever managed a person before, right? Yeah. There's better ways to learn management, which is a hard skill to learn than buying a business. And I would encourage you to go do that. Understanding a P&L or managing a budget. These are also skills that you can go get in corporate America and other places where it's going to transfer over to any business that you buy. Right. The thing that's not is going to be the industry jargon and the industry, you know, specific uh, information and the, and the seller's processes and procedures. And, you know, there's things within the business they're going to have to learn. That goes to the importance of the seller note because that stuff's going to be taught after closing and there's going to be a transition period of up to a year usually. Sometimes it's three months. It, it varies, but the seller's going to teach the buyer those things. So that's a little bit of the leap of faith you've got to take. Ultimately, I think buyers should buy businesses that they are going to be able to add value to and that they can see themselves being in every day and, and living that life. Because yeah. That's what you're really buying. It's not just cash flow on pieces of paper. It's, it's a business with living, breathing things yeah. and people and employees and customers and vendors and all of that. Well, that's funny because we, we talk more people out of business than into business. It's like you you have no idea what, you, what, what you're thinking about getting into. And, you know, if, if uh, you know, being CEO and head janitor, you know, frightens you this is probably not the the path you want to go at least at least at this season of your life. Yeah, and and I was just thinking about this this morning about how like if you're if you own your own business you, you getting you I think you get paid last to a certain extent and that's a, maybe a controversial statement. I think I've heard people on other podcasts that bought a business and it actually ended up I think doing poorly and they said I'm going to always pay myself first. And I cringed because I said, that's not what this is, you know? And, and so it is very difficult. And if mm -hmm. cash flow is tight that month, you're going to suffer. And it, it's not something to jump into lightly. These, these businesses, these small businesses are very hard to operate. Yeah. Well, and the, the profit first mentality I had, I did, I had Mike McAllowitz on, uh, on, uh, on the podcast, um, yeah, I don't know, a year or two ago. And, you know, that the the problem that buyers don't understand is, yeah, you do pay yourself first, but you do have a command of the other operating expenses that facilitate you being able to pay yourself first. And that's the that's the mechanics of it. it it's it, it's true. You can you can do do that and you make better operational experience uh, uh, decisions. But. At the same time, you do have a real big problem if you don't make those changes before you institute paying yourself first. So I'm I'm with you. Um, one of the questions that has crept up is, um, does a lender or someone like you um, have an obligation to me as a buyer? I say no, but I may be wrong. I mean... I, like my only, not really. I mean, my only yeah. obligation is uh, that I, um, and this is, and this is not like an obligation that is absolutely required. It's my own personal obligation. I want to make sure that, for example, when I put out a term sheet, that I get that deal done, mm -hmm. uh, and that I get it done as I presented it, and. That's my obligation. And what I do on the front end to make sure I can ensure that is 
going yeah. deeper and making sure that we're able to follow through on our promises. And that is something that is a problem in the SBA space because a lot of lenders like to put out term sheets to get the deal off the street. I mean, I've literally been coached uh-huh. to do this as, as a younger BDO and yeah. let's get it in here. Let's take a look. Let's, let's get the deal off the street. And it's like, well, they think that you're actually going to follow through on that. And <laughs> right. It's gonna, you're gonna waste six weeks. You're gonna get to loan committee, which is a whole nother topic. And and somebody from loan committee is gonna say, why are we doing this with this equity injection? We should ask for another this or that, and we should get uh, this person, we should get their dad to guarantee. And yeah. and then they gotta come and they say, okay, now I have to decide, do I risk losing this deal because I don't have time to start over with another lender, or do I bite the bullet and do what this lender is asking? And I, I get these calls every day. I mean, I lost a deal the other day and this exact thing happened. It went all the way to loan committee and they said, you know, instead of 10% down, we want 20% down because you don't have any industry. Okay. Well, tell me that two months ago, you know? Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, and again, I'm I'm glad you confirmed it because I, I always say, you know, look, a lender does not have any fiduciary responsibility to you at all. and and as far as what you don't want to happen, and, and you've already alluded to it, is there's nothing worse than having to retrade on on lending, you know. And so if if you're going to put out something that you know, this is this is what has to happen, and I mean the caveat is that deals change, you know, over the course of the six to twelve months it takes to sell a company, things might change that yes. that that force the lender. So don't so this little piece of paper that says I'm willing to lend this, this all bets may be off based on your six month numbers that are tanking. You know? Exactly. That's the biggest thing I'm seeing right now is that we get the updated interim financial statements mm-hmm. and business is not going how we thought it was going to be going. That's a material change. Now yeah. all bets are off. Right we're getting, we're, we just finished, um, you know, going past the tax extension and I'm looking at deals and I'm where we had a 12 month P and L. Now you get the tax return and you know, Oh wow. It's different. Okay. Yeah. Um, is that is that a problem? Yeah, it's a problem. We underwrite off the tax returns, so that's a big problem. Um, so yeah. we're seeing that stuff now. Yeah, and and I and and again, I I think you'll continue you'll continue to to see it. I, I it, but it's funny that that people you know if you don't like the deal or the like the bank's deal, then be the bank yourself, and you can control all of this. And you know, just do it all in seller financing. I don't want to do that. Well, then the person that holds the money really has the opportunity to to kind of mitigate their risks too. Anyway, you can we can you can coach all all you want sellers and uh, about it, but boy, it's like banging your head periodically. But such is life. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, the default rate on SBA loans is only about two percent, which to me is a staggering number. That that it's that low. I would have thought it would have been times three, four. I, I would have I would have thought it'd be seven to ten percent, but two percent across the board. I mean, how is that? Do you have it, when in the in in your travels? Have you found why that is? Well, yeah. I mean, it's. I think, like I said earlier, I think it's artificially low. Um, I think that. First of all, after the Great Recession, the default rate spiked to double digits. Mm-hmm. Then lend, lending completely tightened up for many years. I mean, through 
2015, I would say lending was very tight. I mean, the, the types of deals we were doing. And remember, on business acquisitions, which was a small portion of the overall 7A portfolio, the ones we were doing were low leverage. Mm-hmm. And that opened up in 2016 a little bit with the 90% financing. And um, the economy, though, in 2017, 18, 19 was heating up. So you have this kind of run where you had artificially low interest rates. You had, I mean, even, even when the economy was hot, I mean, the interest rates were still historically low. And yeah. you had, yeah. you had this whole point. run up. Now, then you had 2020. This is when you would expect you know, the, uh, this all to catch up with you and defaults to spike because of COVID. But the SBA, they put an mm-hmm. unprecedented amount of liquidity into the marketplace. And to their credit, they directed it towards small business instead of the banks, right? Like yeah. last time. So yeah. I, I commend them for that. But you had PPP putting out all that free money into the market. You had EIDL loans, which are emergency loans, which mm-hmm. everyone got at, you know, super low payment terms. Yeah. You had the SBA making your payments for you for six months on the existing portfolio. So everyone from April to October, I believe it was. Or yeah. The SBA was just making your payment for you. So no one was defaulting in 2020. 2021, there was more incentives. There's still PPP. Now, um, 2022 uh, and 2023, you see it starting to pick up, but it's still sure. relatively low. Um, I think next year you see it go, go, you break above two for sure. Uh, yeah. and, and it starts getting uh, back to normal because now you have the liquidity drying up, you have interest rates at, you know, double digits, mm-hmm. and you have uh, different yeah. in the economy. No, I mean that that was a that was a great synopsis. I, I hadn't when when you had said it was artificially, um, you know, I, I was thinking, uh, you know, some another politician. But no, the the way you described it, I, I totally can see how how it it has how they have unintentionally kept it kept it low. So that that I appreciate that one. So you and I had a fellow by the name of Brett Keynes on our podcast on from Loomis Data. What a fascinating business that is, huh? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a really cool one. Um, it, it is. We, we are, so Brett is, um, he's the, he, I know he was on your podcast a couple episodes ago and, you know, he, he has that, he's the former CFO of Live Oak, which right. is, I mean, Live Oak is such a big player in the SBA space. Like, I think I'm pretty sure they can like split into two and both of them would still be the biggest SBA lenders. <laughs> right. And so, you know, that what he was able to see there during his time was, you know, I'm sure fascinating. And then he went and leveraged that into his own business and, and uh, it's data. Yeah. I mean, right. this is it, this, I love it because in those committees I told you about at the banks, um, we don't have a old school loan committee here at, at Fundix, by the way, we do it kind of uh, more, it's the more new school approach. Um, but in the a lot of the banks, they still do that where they go into a room and and the right. bank officers and the retired bankers that are on the board make loan decisions based on whatever they want. It's right. like, hey, I had a car wash go bad in uh, 1992, so uh, I don't want to do right. the car washes anymore. So this is a way to actually bring some data to those yeah. banks and say, well, actually, the default rate's really low on on this particular sector, and and here's the data. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I'm just curious to, it, I mean, six data points and they can, they can predict the default rate to me. I mean, th that's, that's really exciting. And, and I'm just curious to know whether or not, you know, cause I do see that the future of lending as well as the future of, of there'll be some, there'll be some layer that helps buyers select their businesses, you know, that this is a preliminary due diligence step. And I, I'm really stoked for those guys, but, but uh, yeah, you, you already alluded to it, that it's, you know, it's all, it's so much data driven and they, and the underwriting process can be augmented using their platform. So I was just curious to see what, what you thought of it. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a game changer. And I, you know, we're using it. Um, we actually have a call today at the time that we're recording this with them to because we just signed their contract uh, Did you? last week. And so we're rolling it out. And, and I, I, I think it's going to really impact the small loans. Um, first, I mean, the small loans in the SBA 7A program means under a half a million dollars, yep. which is, there's still deals going on under half a million. And, 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 you know, business brokers particularly need to take note of this because it's no longer do I need to get elbow deep into these small $300,000 deals to figure out if they work. We, we run a score. We get the Lumos report. We, we're looking at the buyer more now. Uh -huh. um, we're going to do a high-level spreading of the business cash flow, but it's not going to be anything close to what we're doing on the SBA 7A standard loans, which are over half a million to five million. So with these small loans that the SBA is trying to drive home is we want to, they want to do more of them. They want them more streamlined. So they have their own scoring model, which is called SBSS. Lumos's uh, scoring model is like way, it's, I think it's a little bit more uh, right, right. I know nuanced. But between these, all these scores, you can make credit decisions now a lot easier and get the money out the door a lot quicker. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and the hope is that they, they expand the the SBA express loan up, you know, raise that cap even higher to accommodate this, this type of loan where, it, where it's based on credit and scoring more so than, than I don't want to say the merits of the business that because it, it, that does play a part, but I think as far as pushing those deals through, I think I, I'm, I'm hopeful that that's what, what ends up happening. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, to hear that. Uh, Cause he's such a good guy. It, it was, uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear you guys are working together. Um, franchises. Um, what do you think? I mean, is, is it, you, you guys do a lot of franchises or no? Yeah. Franchises are franchises. It's again, data, right? So right. Uh, in fact, um, uh, Brett's partnered with a, a company called Brand Data now, right. and so we get the uh, data from them, and it basically tells us. I mean, we get the default rates first of all from the SBA, so we can tell the SBA's track record with any given franchise. But you also have the FDD, the Franchise Disclosure Documents, which mm -hmm. we love looking at, and it uh, oftentimes, you know, in item nineteen, they have these financial representations, and some are more transparent than others, but. Anytime you can just kind of compare the actual set of financials, you know, assuming it's a business acquisition, um, to this, the, a large pool of data to try to figure out how this one compares to a thousand other units, that's yep. always a plus. And then, you know, startups, it also makes the startups a lot more possible because when you're, uh, 
you know, starting up a business and you're, and you're not a franchise, all we have to go off of is the buyer's projections and they can tell us how they came to these projections, but it's also ultimately going to be based on them and what they think. But with a franchise, you can then uh, use this FDD and the financial representations that are laid out in there to validate what the projections yeah. are showing and say, hey, yeah. well, these sometimes I'll get projections and be like, hey, if, if you do this, you'll be like the best unit in their whole system by like two. I'm like, how do you get to these projections? And so nice. it gives us a little bit more to play with. I get it. All right. Two more questions. 2024 crystal ball time. I know lots of people look to you for some for for what you see coming. So, SBA Ray, tell us what what you see in twenty four. So, twenty twenty three. So we go by fiscal years in the SBA right. space. Right. So, like we're now in twenty twenty four fiscal I get year. It. I get. It. And twenty twenty three was really, I would say, the best year of SBA lending in history because there's one other year that was bigger, um, and that was the year in twenty twenty one where they were giving out free money. Um, and so I don't count that year, but last year, considering the rates double, considering, um, economic headwinds, considering all these different factors, we did 27 billion of seven, a volume, which is the biggest year, except for the one caveat year in the history mm -hmm. of the program. And so this year coming up, I see that growing. I do see that growing because the thing is conventional lending. If that tightens up, SBA is coming to fill the gaps. And we've yeah. already seen the tightening, but it's going to continue, I think. And so SBA will definitely step up to the plate. You've got more lenders coming in. You have new non-bank lenders now. They just gave three licenses to new non-bank lenders. They haven't given a, a, a license out since 1982. Oh, wow. So you have one of them was Funding Circle. Now, they're, they're a competitor, so I'm going to have to you know destroy them in the market. But I still have to respect what they're doing. Yeah. You know, and they have sweet. big high hopes. So I think that um, SBA lending originations is going to be really strong. Now, I think there's going to also be higher defaults uh, on the existing portfolio, which is expected with, you know, the interest rates being where they're at. And, and most of those folks were on floating rate loans and got into the program at five, six percent. And now they're at, you know, 11 percent. And uh, yeah, of course, that's going to be uh, a little tight if you didn't really stress test your deal at an extra 5%, because who did that in, you know, 2021? Right. Well, Ray, this has been awesome. I, uh, you're a wealth of knowledge, but I, I knew you would be. So that, that, that's not, uh, <laughs> that's not uh, any, anything new for me. But, you know, where, where can we find you? You could find me. And you can find me in a lot of places, um, but uh, you know I, I'm I'm putting out a new video this week on my YouTube channel, so definitely check out SBA Ray on YouTube. Uh, I work at Fundex Solutions. You can go to fundexsolutions.com and you can find me there as well. Okay, all right. Thank you for your your time, and we're we're recording it uh, the Monday before Thanksgiving, so uh, I'm I'm certainly thankful for for you and your time, and uh, it it's been great. You, okay, you, you're, you so you're everything that. Uh, that I anticipated you would be. So, hey, you're not so bad yourself. This was another episode of the Defenders of Business Value podcast. For more episodes packed with strategies to increase the value of your business, visit defendersofbusinessvalue.com for show notes, transcripts, and free tools to start you on your journey. Subscribe now so you don't miss any future episodes.